It is the best-selling book in history. No volume ever written has been more loved and quoted. And its words, sometimes simple and sometimes mysterious, should always be studied carefully. It is the Bible, the Word of God. Welcome to Bible Answers Live, providing accurate and practical answers to all your Bible questions. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this broadcast, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, here's your host from Amazing Facts International, Pastor Doug Batchelor. Hello, friends. Would you like to hear an amazing fact? An anechoic chamber is a very carefully insulated room designed to eliminate all sound. Orfield Laboratories in Minnesota has built what is listed as the quietest place on earth, a chamber so quiet that the longest anybody has been able to bear it is 45 minutes. It's 99.99% sound absorbent, and it holds a Guinness World Record for the world's quietest place. The inside of the small room is lined on all six sides with deep fiberglass wedges, a double wall of insulated steel, and one-foot-thick reinforced concrete. Inside the room, it's so silent that background noise is actually measured in negative decibels. It is so quiet, you'll hear your heart beating, your stomach gurgling, I hear that anyway sometimes, and your bones grinding. But the room isn't just for torturing people. Companies rent the room to test their products and to find out just how loud they really are. Even NASA has sent astronauts there to help them experience the absolute science silence of space. You know, Pastor Ross, sometimes when you live in the city and there's all this background noise, you long to find a place where you can have a little bit of peace and quiet. Mm-hmm. Even if you get out of the, the busyness of the city and you go to the country, you find a quieter place, but you still hear the wind blowing, you hear the chirping of the, of the birds and so on. But a place where there is absolute silence, you can understand why somebody can only be in there for 45 minutes we're not used to that kind of silence. Yeah, they, they used to call them, I think, um, isolation chambers, mm-hmm. where it would kind of isolate you and separate you from all sound. Uh, for some reason, uh, that sounds attractive to me. <laughs> some people, some people, when it's totally quiet, it unnerves them, evidently. Right. I'd like to take the test here and see if I can make it more than 45 minutes. I'll bet you I could. But, um, you know, it makes me think about a verse in the Bible that talks about silence in a place where you wouldn't expect it to be absolutely silent. And that's heaven. In Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, it says, He opened the seventh seal, and there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, normally in heaven, you figure that the angels are singing, you know, the vision that Isaiah had of God on his throne, the angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy. And in the presence of the Lord, you just picture there's going to be this awesome music and to have that, you know, they, they say the worst thing you can do in radio is have what they call dead air. That's where you have no sound. And uh, people will change channels in heaven to have dead air. It says about the space of half an hour. What do you think that means? Well, you know, it's interesting. You do find these different time periods in Bible prophecy. And uh, the Bible tells us as a principle when interpreting Bible time prophecy, one prophetic day is equal to one literal year. So uh, scholars have done the math. There are 360 days in a Hebrew year, Mm -hmm. 24 hours in the day. So you divide 360 
by 24, you end up with 15, uh, 15 days, which would be our time. But here the verse says there's silence in heaven about the space of a half an hour. So you would you would need to cut that 15 day and a half. So, so well, 15 days prophetically would be about an hour. One hour. Then a half an hour would be, well, seven days, about a week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, why would it be quiet in heaven for a week? Well, you'd think it would be quiet in heaven because something very important is happening. And uh, we know that when Jesus comes the second time, he's going to bring all of the angels with him. And if there's anyone else left in heaven, I'm sure their focus is on what's happening here on the earth at the second coming of Christ. So the half an hour of silence in heaven is really taking place in the future when Jesus comes the second time. And it's, it's at the end. It's, I guess, the seventh seal. That's right. Is when that happens. Well, that makes sense because it does say there in prophecy that when Christ comes, it says he's coming and all the angels with him, not uh, some angels. Mm-hmm. So if all the angels that sing God's praise in heaven are gone, it would be quiet. Now, it is interesting if there's seven days of silence in heaven, well, that would mean that it would probably take about seven days for the journey from earth back to heaven. I don't think it takes three and a half days for Jesus to come with the angels and then three and a half days to go back because, you know, angels can travel at the speed of thought. Mm-hmm. So I would assume then that Christ and the angels come quickly to the earth and then the journey back to heaven takes about seven days. Maybe take us on a little tour. That's right. Some things to see the on the scenic way route. Back. <laughs> the scenic route. Well, we're looking forward to what the Bible calls the blessed hope when Jesus comes again. And there's several references to the second coming in the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. We have a study guide, a free guide. If someone wants to study and learn something about not only the nearness of Jesus' return, according to the prophecies, but something about how he's going to return. Because we know Satan's going to try to trick people and there'll be false Christs and he'll maybe even try to fabricate the second coming somehow. We want to know something about that, and we have a free offer. We do. It's one of the Amazing Facts study guides, and it's called The Ultimate Deliverance. And really, it's all about the second coming of Christ. All the scriptures are there. Just a great study. If you're wondering about what the next big thing is that's going to happen on earth, well, it's the greatest thing of all, the second coming of Christ. And we'll be happy to send that to anyone who calls and asks. The number is 800-835-6747. And you can ask for the study guide. Just ask for it by name. It's called The Ultimate Deliverance. It's the study guide on the second coming of Christ. You can also ask for free offer 105, and we'll be happy to send that to anyone here in North America. We'll send it to you through the mail. If you're listening outside of North America, and Pastor Doug, we have folks listening from other countries at different time zones, if you'd like to read that study guide, just go to the Amazing Facts website, amazingfacts.org or .com, and you'll be able to read that study guide right there at the website. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. Well, before we go to the phone lines, we always like to begin our program with prayer. So let's just do that right now. Dear Father, once again, we are grateful for this time where we can just open up your word and study. Study the word of life, the word of truth. And uh, Lord, the Bible is your book. So we need the Holy Spirit to guide us. So we ask for your blessing. Be with us here in the studio. Be with those who are listening wherever they might be. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And of course, Pastor Doug, we want to welcome all of those who are listening. We have folks listening on satellite radio and then also land-based radio stations across the country. We have people listening on the internet, on uh, the Doug Batchelor Facebook page, the Amazing Facts Facebook page, also on YouTube, on AFTV. And I think this will be rebroadcast on some other networks, Hope Channel, 3ABN. Absolutely. So we want to welcome all of those who are tuning in. This is a live interactive Bible study. So if you have a Bible-related question, the number to call here is 800-463-7297. That's 
1-800-463-7297 with your Bible question. Our first caller this evening is Anthony, and he's listening in New York. Uh, Anthony, welcome to the program. Hi, good evening again, Pastors. Evening. Yes, uh, that, that amazing fact was actually perfect for the question I have today. Um, and I'll, as I always say, I'll try to be concise. <laughs> um, in general, my question is, what is the role of the, the range of emotions when it comes to worship? And then I know we tend to, you know, try to be more reserved in church and more reflective and solemn in church. But is there a role for the emotion of excitement? And I'm trying to figure out what's the biblical balance for the two. Yeah, that is a great question. Um, you know, when you read the Bible, you'll find examples. Well, first of all, let me, let me just uh, set a, a big context for this. Um, when we're in the presence of God, the Bible teaches consistently that there should be reverence. Now, you find verses in the Bible that says the Lord is in his holy temple at all the earth. Keep silent, speaking of silence. Uh, so there's a time for, for silence and reverence. Then you find when they gathered for the reading of the word in the book of Ezra, uh, the people were convicted and they wept. And then uh, Ezra told the people, do not weep. Weep today is a day for rejoicing. And there are times when Solomon dedicated the, uh, the temple and the fire of God came down and the people fell on their faces. There was fear and there was awe. So you can see, based on the, the context of what's happening, the preacher might be preaching a sermon where some are greatly comforted and there's rejoicing. Others might be convicted. And there's like the publican that smote upon his breast and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. So uh, all things should be done in the context of reverence. We've all seen church services probably on TV where you know, it looks like a hootenanny. And there's just, it's chaos. Paul says, let all things be done decently in order. But that doesn't mean there shouldn't be great joy. I think when people sing, look at all the Psalms that talk about you know, joy to the Lord and rejoicing. Uh, now, if my rejoicing totally distracts the other person, I went to a church where there was this uh, one individual that uh, every time I made a point, uh, there was a, a, a loud hallelujah that would almost make the people around them jump. And I appreciated the encouragement, but it was distracting everybody else because it was so loud that um, I had to ask them. I said, look, can you, can you dial the volume down a little bit? <laughs> So you don't want your rejoicing or your weeping or whatever it is to be a spectacle that's going to distract other people from hearing the word. So there's that balance. I don't know. What, what do you think, Pastor Ross? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when one enters into the presence of God or into a house of worship, the church, and you're going to worship, I think it's appropriate to come in with reverence, with quietness, understanding that you're in the presence of God and you're preparing mm -hmm. your heart for worship. But as you mentioned, throughout the worship service, there are appropriate times for a uh, singing and rejoicing and praising God. But there are also other times for quiet reflection, contemplation, uh, listening to the word. Mm -hmm. So I think that and needs to Joel be And then Joel even says it's time to wail. And <laughs> He's yeah. talking about repentance, though. Right. <laughs> he and says there are times when people should repent, and, and he said uh, they should wail and weep. And uh, those are, you know, hopefully not the weekly service. Right. But, yeah. So great question, Anthony. I don't know if that helped your answer at all, but... Um, yeah, like it says here, you, you gave us a scripture from Solomon to everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. So there are times for fasting and prayer and maybe weeping. There certainly are times for rejoicing as the angels rejoice and praising God. The gospel is called good news. It's uh, the context, I think. Okay, very good. Always done with reverence. 
We've got Cole listening in uh, North Dakota. Cole, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Um, the question I have is from Isaiah 45, verse 7. Um, it's, I'll read the text real quick. Okay. Um, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. I know other translations use words like calamity or disaster, but I've had a discussion with some people about this, and they made a point about God does create evil for his glory, but I'm, my question is, does God actually create evil if he's perfect? <laughs> yeah, no, that, this is actually, I think, uh, at least in the King James Version, it's sort of an unfortunate translation. We get that question a lot where God says, I create evil. Um, you look at the book of Job and look at the, the calamities that came upon Job. And here the devil came to God and said, you know, Job is the only reason he serves you is because you've hedged him in with angels. You protect him and you bless him. And if you take away your protection, he'll curse you to your face. And God says, okay, I'm going to withdraw my protection, but there's limits on what you can do. So God is sovereign in the sense that he had to loosen the devil's leash but it was the devil that did it. So God created a beautiful angel who was given a free will who chose to do evil. Now the Bible says every good, and this is the book of James, every good and perfect gift comes from God. Uh, Jesus said God is good. And so you cannot be simultaneously light and darkness, good and evil. Mm -hmm. Well, we know the consequence of evil is sorrow, suffering, and death. Mm -hmm. Other, you know, it's rebellion, and God wouldn't create something that would lead to rebellion, suffering, and death, contrary to His nature. God is a God of love. So, if you look in, in the Bible, verse, the yeah. devil's really the author of of evil. Exactly. So, this verse we kind of strayed a little bit from it, but the verse that you're talking about in Isaiah chapter 45, verse seven, where He said, uh, "I make peace and create evil." As you mentioned, my, like the New King James says, create calamity. And the word there would really be, I allow calamity. So sometimes God allows trials to come. And uh, when the flood came on the world, well, God said, I'm going to send a flood. It's the language that he uses. It was to punish the evil. And so uh, Isaiah is saying, I'm the one who ultimately has sovereign uh, final power. Mm -hmm. Hope All that right. helps. Good question. Next caller that we have is Solas listening in Arkansas. Solas, welcome to the program. Hello, pastors. Hi. Thank you for having me. My question is on Luke chapter 16, verse 9, and it's after the parable of the unjust steward. And it's when Jesus says, And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. So... I'm kind of confused on that. Could you explain that? Yeah, this is a, a parable that is, has left a lot of people wondering. Jesus talks about this steward that is very unfaithful and realizing he's going to be fired, he go, enters into agreements with the debtors of his master so that they basically become accomplices with him. And Jesus is he's um, complimenting, and you can read this in verse 8, I believe, it says, so the master commended the unjust steward. Why would you commend somebody unjust? He's not commending him for being unjust. He's saying, what you've done is wise. You are looking ahead and you are making plans to protect your future. 
And you notice in the end of this parable, he says that the children of this age are often wiser than the children of light, meaning that the people in the world, you know, they'll, they'll do things to plan to secure their future, but a lot of people say they're believers aren't really planning for their everlasting future. So when he says, I say, make for yourself friends of unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. I think Jesus is saying that we ought to invest uh, using the world's resources, invest in saving people. We're going to see them through eternity in heaven. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, I think you're right, Pastor Doug. You know, sometimes in the parables of Jesus, Jesus uses contrast to illustrate mm -hmm. the important truth. So if the wicked are preparing for their eternal future, meaning destruction because they focus on the things of this earth, shouldn't we as believers also be preparing for what we believe to be a future in paradise with Christ and with the saved, the redeemed in heaven? Um, we need to be preparing for that. We need to be getting ready for that. And as you said, utilizing our resources and our influence to help get other people into the kingdom as well. Yep. So hope that helps a little solace and we sure appreciate your call. Next caller that we have is uh, Joan, listening in Arkansas. Joan, welcome to the program. I think you mean Joan from Anchorage, Alaska. Oh, there oh, it is. Yeah, okay. That's it. Sorry, from Alaska, Joan, that's welcome. You. <laughs> uh, well, good evening, pastors. Um, I was wondering if you could help me to understand who the eight kings are that are mentioned in Revelation 17, verse 10 and 11. I can read that for you. I tell you what, Joan, why don't you let us read it? Because you were getting terrible feedback. You may have your radio on in the background. Really? Yeah. So if, uh, I don't know if you can How turn. How is it now? There we go. That's better. So you go ahead. You can read it. Okay. It says, there are also... Uh, no, here, this is chapter, uh, verse 9. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. And the beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seventh. And he is going and is going into perdition. Okay. So I was just wondering if you could let me know who these eight kings are. All right, good. We'll do our best. Now, I'll just go, I'll, I'll tell you right at the outset that uh, even within my church, there are probably four major interpretations of this. You know, we're, we're not cookie cutters where everybody has every answer for everything. And uh, so there are different views on this prophecy. I'll tell you what I teach and what you're going to find typically in the Amazing Facts Lessons. It says that this woman is sitting on seven mountains. Well, most scholars believe that the, uh, the woman of Revelation 17 is talking about the papacy. A woman is a church. Here's a woman who's been unfaithful because the papacy, they started to turn to idolatry and they you know, adopted a number of pagan um, doctrines. They were seen as the harlot or the unfaithful woman sitting among seven hills. Rome is the city of seven hills. Now, this is what luther and calvin and spurgeon and wesley the, so many protestants taught and unitedly believe this but it says that those seven hills are also seven kings or kingdoms on which he sits and says five are fallen now some take the perspective that when john wrote this rome pagan rome was in power so the five before would be you've got the five powers that occupied god's people which were egypt 
Assyria, uh, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. Five were fallen. After Greece fell, it says one is, that would be pagan Rome, Rome ruled by Caesars. Then the one who is the, um, the, the spiritual problem would be the seventh, which is the papacy. But it receives a deadly wound and recovers and comes back into power. That's why it says he's also the eighth. How can the seventh also be the eighth unless it uh, takes a break and comes back? And so, and it talks about this beast receiving a deadly wound, but the wound is healed in Revelation 13. So hopefully you could take that all in. That's, that's the way that uh, a number uh, of scholars understand it, but not all. So, uh, and I think you'd find that in our lessons. I don't remember what lesson it is. Where it ta- oh, that's the woman? It's, yeah, the uh, the other woman the mystery, is what it's yeah, called. It's, it's a lesson called The Other mm-hmm. Woman that you can get. And if you'd like to receive the lesson, just call and ask. The number to call for that is uh, 800-835-6747. And you can ask for the study guide. It's called The Other Woman. And we'll be happy to send it out to anyone who calls and asks. Thank you. Joan from Arkansas, Alaska. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Next caller that we have is uh, Edna from Michigan. Edna, welcome to the program. Hi, guys. Thank you for taking my phone call. Yeah. My question tonight comes out of Revelation, and it's about the seven last plagues. I know the controversy is about God's seventh-day Sabbath and man worshiping on the last, on the first day, and about the time of trouble, the close of probation, but I do not understand what is the purpose of the seven last plagues. Okay, good. Uh, keep in mind the seven last plagues are something of a parallel to what happened in Exodus. In Exodus, God was getting ready to take his people from slavery to the promised land. Jesus is getting ready to take his people from the slavery of the devil in this world to the promised land of heaven. And there's these 10 plagues that fell on Egypt. Now, the last seven of the 10 plagues, God protects even the Israelites from those. It doesn't affect the land of Goshen. So you've got the seven plagues of Egypt do not affect the Israelites. The first three did. And you're saying, well, if, if a probation's closed, then why is God allowing this? Well, it's, for one thing, it's showing they did not repent. Um, when the plagues came on the Egyptians, even the Pharaoh says he repented. And the Egyptians said, let them go. There was some repentance. But the wicked of the world, they have no redeemable qualities left. They've hardened their hearts. There's nothing that God can do. And he's demonstrating to their friends, family, and unfallen worlds that the world, even under these trials, does not soften their hearts and turn to God, but they harden their hearts and they blaspheme and they curse God. So it's something of a demonstration. You know, under the fifth plague that you read about in Revelation chapter 16, verse 11, well, let me start in verse 10. It says, Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and the kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. And then the next verse says, they blasphemed the God of heaven because of the pains and because of the sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Mm-hmm. So it's evident here that they recognize that these are judgments coming from God, but their heart is so hardened that they rebel even under these judgments, and they blaspheme the name of God. That's right. So the plagues reveal the true uh, condition of the heart. But at the same time, you find another group in Revelation that when the plagues have been fall, or falling upon the earth, they're trusting in God. They're rejoicing because they know the end is coming. Their faith has been tested and tried, but they are, are shown to be genuine. They're true. And those are the ones that have the seal of God. So the plagues reveal the two groups right. at the end of time. And they are something of a judgment because when the blood, the ocean and the springs become mm-hmm. blood, the angel says, 
they've shed the blood of the saints, you're giving them blood to drink. Right. So it's their kind of it's something of a judgment as well as a demonstration. Thanks. That's a good good question, Edna. We appreciate it. All right. Maybe one more question before we take our break. We have Des listening in Florida. Des, welcome to the program. Hello. Welcome. Thank you. Hi. I'm calling about the last days. We, I know they said something we were talking about supposed to leave the city mm-hmm. and um, move into the country somewhere. And uh, I don't understand. I mean, I don't know what's hard to say. Yeah, no, that's a good question. In the last days, uh, when Jesus says in Matthew 24, when you see the abomination of desolation stand in the holy place, let those that be in Judea flee into the mountains. I think in uh, Luke it says, when you see Jerusalem encompassed with armies, let those that be in Judea flee into the mountains. So for ancient Israel, when the abomination of desolation came, the Roman armies surrounded them. That was a signal to flee. There was a brief break in that siege, and uh, they fled. Um, in the last days, God's people are going to be hedged in again by laws, religious laws that compel worship. First, you can't buy or sell, and ultimately there'll be a death decree. And when we see that those laws are coming, that's going to be a, a time for we probably want to get out of the cities. And especially, now that doesn't mean everybody can afford to, you know, sell their home and go buy a country estate. Um, but we should be moving towards more remote places. I think the Lord is warning us just very practically. We saw in recent years there's been some social unrest and cities were on fire and and there were there are places in uh, you know Portland, Oregon and stuff you couldn't even drive downtown. We had some friends that lived there and they said it was just terrible and and uh, a number of Minneapolis and and uh, Florida and Washington DC, you know, police marching up the street. You didn't see that kind of rioting going on in podunk you know these little farm towns they didn't they didn't have that same kind of threat so you're a little safer in more remote communities during that time and so i think that's the warning then you got that verse there in isaiah woe unto them that join house to house and lay field to field till there's no place that a man can be alone on the earth it's nice to have a place more alone we're going to take a break come back with more bible questions after these messages Stay tuned. Bible Answers Live will return shortly. Every year, 40,000 souls in North America end their own lives. Suicide is a terrible tragedy. And while it's difficult to talk about, we need to face it together as Christians. That's why in my new book, Choosing Life, I share the biblical perspective about suicide, answering some difficult questions about faith and salvation along the way, and offering practical tips that should help and encourage others. Get your copy at afbookstore.com or call 800-538-7275. What if you could know the future? What would you do? What would you change? To see the future, you must understand the past. Alexander the Great becomes king when he's only 18, but he's a military prodigy. 150 years in advance, Cyrus had been named. Rome was violent, they were ruthless, they were determined. The gospel writers see his death as a fulfillment of salvation. 
This intriguing documentary, hosted by Pastor Doug Batchelor, explores the most striking Bible prophecies that have been dramatically fulfilled throughout history, kingdoms in time. Get your copy today. Available now on DVD, Blu-ray, or USB. For more information, visit kingdomsintime.com. Written by the hand of God and spoken with His voice, some words will never fade. Get Pastor Doug Batchelor's 12-part sermon series on the Ten Commandments by calling 800-538-7275 or visit afbookstore.com. You're listening to Bible Answers Live, where every question answered provides a clearer picture of God and His plan to save you. So what are you waiting for? Get practical answers about the good book for a better life today. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this evening's program, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, let's rejoin our hosts for more Bible Answers Live. Welcome back, listening friends. And if you joined us along the way, this is Bible Answers Live, and we do our best to answer Bible questions from around the world. And uh, actually, we've got some lines open. I have a couple people in line, but if you'd like to call in with your Bible question, you can call 800-GOD-SAYS. That's 800-463-7297. Or you can um, be watching also on the internet. We're streaming on Facebook and as well as some television stations. My name is Doug Batchelor. My name is John Ross. And uh, our next caller that we have is Paul, listening from Washington State. Paul, you're on the air. Yes, I am. Uh, my question is, what does the Bible say about having a large sum of money in the bank or in investments near the last days? A good question. Um, I'm looking up a verse right now. Yeah, there's, in, there's a parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 12, where he said, he spoke a parable, and this is verse 16, Luke 12, verse 16. He spoke a parable to them saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns and I'll build bigger barns and there I'll store all my crops and my goods. And I'll say, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? And Jesus says, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You certainly don't want to be hoarding and uh, stockpiling you know, resources. You know, And this is a great question, Paul, because well, does that mean everybody is to give away everything they have right now? Uh, does it mean we should save nothing? And I really like the way John Wesley dealt with this issue. He said, a Christian should earn all they can, they should save all they can, and they should give all they can. So I think there's a balance. We don't know exactly when the Lord's going to come. 
So, you know, it's probably a good idea to have some savings for yourself and your family. And, um, you know, if you're working hard and you're earning, uh, you should also be able to give um, and uh, give generously. So uh, that, I think, is the principle. If the, you know, even if you divided your resources the way I just stated it, and you said, all right, well, I'm going to, you know, need one-third for living, one-third for saving, and one-third for giving. I mean, that'd be, imagine how radical that would be for the church to say a third of what I have I'm going to give to God's work. Man, the gospel would go into all the world pretty quick. And just even the spirit that it would take to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, Jesus said something else in Luke chapter 12, verse 33. Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. So if you're utilizing our resources to build up the kingdom of heaven, that's mm -hmm. going to be our, our passion. That's where our heart is. But if our goal is just to treasure up treasure here on this earth, well, our heart's in the wrong place. Yep. All thanks, right, thanks Paul. for your call. You know, we do have a study guide. It's called In God We Trust. And it's talking about what the Bible says about finance. And mm -hmm. we'll be happy to send this to anyone who calls and asks. The number is 800-835-6747. And you can ask for the study guide. It's called In God We Trust. And we'll be happy to send that to anyone in North America. Amen. We got uh, Aaron listening in New York. Aaron, welcome to the program. Good evening, pastors, and thank mm. you for taking my call. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 21 says, Thus says the Lord, Take heed to yourselves and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it into the gates of Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Well, the Jewish leaders during the time when Jesus walked on earth believed that one of the people Jesus healed broke this law by carrying his bed. But Jesus disagreed about that. My question is, what is the meaning of the word burden in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 21? Yeah, well, first of all, when Jesus healed a man, he said, take up your bed and go to your house. Uh, and I think he did that on a couple occasions. Once with the, well, I don't know that it was a Sabbath. The, the, the paralytic doesn't say it was a Sabbath. The um, blind man, I think he took up his stuff and went home. Uh, and the man, Pool of Bethesda. That was a Sabbath. Yeah, yeah. So, um, that's a whole different kind of burden than Jeremiah is talking about people that were carrying burdens of goods to sell. They were doing buying and selling and business and, uh, you know, carrying. If, uh, if, if Jesus heals and you got to take your sleeping bag home, uh, that's not Sabbath breaking. So, you know, Jesus is saying it's better to do good on the Sabbath day. Uh, some people look at the disputes that Jesus had regarding the Sabbath. Matter of fact, probably one of the most disputed of the Ten Commandments that Jesus had with the uh, scribes and the Pharisees was regarding the Sabbath. He never said you should not keep it. it. The arguments were always about how to keep it. And basically he said, you know, you've put undue burdens on people asking them to, uh, uh, you know, carry legalistic laws that you won't lift with one of your fingers. Um, he healed a woman who was bent over on the Sabbath day and he said, this woman's been bound by the devil for 18 years and you guys will untie your ox and your donkey and water them on the Sabbath day or you'll milk your goat or your cow. Why wouldn't you want to relieve the burden of this lady on the Sabbath day and, and heal her? So I don't know if that's answering your question, uh, but Aaron, hopefully that helps a little bit. I think the context of the whole concern here that Jeremiah has is that there were those who were bringing in their goods into Jerusalem on the Sabbath to sell mm -hmm. their goods. And finally, you know, the gates were eventually, yeah, had to be closed a little later when you read about Ezra and Nehemiah. So 
I think the point here is just uh, conducting regular business. Of course, in those days, they would go into the field, they'd have to gather up the grain, they'd have to carry it into the city. That's not an appropriate work to do on the Sabbath. Right. All right, thank you for your call. We've got Aaron now, also Aaron, listening from California. Aaron, welcome to the program. Uh, good evening. Thank you so much for taking my call. Yes. Uh, pastors, I, I had a question. Uh, recently, my wife uh, came across a video online that uh, had a person who is a personal video they made. And in the video, they, they, they sort of twisted, I believe what they did was twist uh, the scripture because they wanted to basically say that because God created man and you know, God created man, male and female, and he created them in his image, that somehow that means that God is non-binary. And uh, so, and I just was curious what your thoughts are as far as perhaps maybe more specifically what the Bible might say in reference to how man is created in God's image. Well, um, I do think the Bible teaches us, of course, God is a spirit. That doesn't mean God has no form. Uh, the person of the Godhead that might be difficult for us to comprehend as far as the form would be God the Spirit, who sometimes is appearing as everything from fire and water to a dove um, and wind. But um, when the Bible talks about the visions that the apostles saw, uh, Daniel and John and Ezekiel and Isaiah, it talks about God having hands, head, feet, legs, it says on Jesus' thigh, and it portrays him with, I don't want to say it portrays him, uh, it's like telling a child, your parents look like you. Well, no, they look like their parents. So, you know, Jesus is portrayed having these features that we have, we have them because he has them. So I think God must have some form, because the other thing is Jesus took humanity, and he's now going to bear that through eternity. Uh, you know, he uh, permanently identified himself with humanity and even in his resurrection form. So, um, but to say that God is non-binary, someone is trying to politicize our, our uh, you know, get, get the nature of God caught up in some of the cultural issues today, and that's a, that's a sensational stretch. Um, God is consistently referred to as our Father in the Bible, and, um, but I don't believe that he has gender in the sense that we do, so it's silly to try and classify him as male, female, or even binary. As, anyway, so hopefully that helps a little, Aaron. I appreciate your question. Next caller that we have is uh, Armando in North Carolina. Armando, welcome to the program. Uh, Pastor John, Pastor Sean Ross, and Pastor Doug Batchelor, how are you guys? We're thankful Good. to be here. Thank you guys for having me. Uh, <laughs> uh, my question is in regard is regarding Judges 13 when the angel of the Lord comes to speak to the wife of Manoah. Mm -hmm. And I think in uh, verses 4 and 5, the angel of the Lord starts to, I guess, specify um, that the, I guess, the vow will be taken on by the mother, but then essentially Samson will have the Nazarite vow. I just wanted to see if that's, um, if if that's the case with Samson taking on the Nazarite vow, I have a couple uh, footnotes and a couple Bibles that indicate that the Nazarite vow is in Numbers six. Yes. And um, and then and then I just had a follow up question: If that was the case, how was Samson able to um, carry on the vow when uh, whenever he would sin or you know kill a body when he was against the army and 
you yeah. know, because the 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 the, the it, it's specific in numbers about coming right. with a dead body. And well, let's let's just uh, be honest. Um, Samson did a pretty terrible job of keeping the vow of a Nazarite. His parents did their best during the gestation of the baby and in his raising to convince him that he was special, got a special plan for him. He had taken a Nazarite vow, but he seems to be rebelling against that during his life. He wasn't supposed to drink wine, but it seems like he did. He wasn't supposed to touch a dead body, but we know that he did. I mean, he killed a lion and ate honey out of it, and he picked up the jawbone of a donkey and slew a thousand men, and then he went and stayed with a harlot in Gaza, which is obviously breaking the Nazarite vow. And finally, his hair not being cut, and he betrays that secret, and God says, enough's enough, you know. And he was very patient with them. But um, yeah, Samson, uh, he, he didn't do a very good job in following that vow. His parents had sort of consecrated him. Now, conversely, you have Hannah, you got Manoah's wife, who tries their best to raise Samson to follow the vow, and he rebels against it. You have Hannah, who makes the Nazarite vow for Samuel. Samuel keeps it. And he is consecrated through his life uh, to the Lord that way. So you're right. Uh, those Nazarite vows and numbers there are pretty definitive. All right. Thanks for your call. We've got Maggie listening in Washington. Maggie, welcome to the program. Uh, good evening, gentlemen. Uh, first, I want to just tell you that I pray for both of you daily that the Lord should put a hedge about you for your protection. Um, yeah, my question well, is, you. are the 24 elders in the book of Revelation, are, are they the saints that, were, that uh, Matthew 27, 52 mentions after Jesus' resurrection? Well, that's another one of those verses. And I'll also have Pastor Ross weigh in on this. The, the question is, um, when it says there's these 24 elders, how'd they get to heaven? Uh, are they some of the saints resurrected there in, in uh, the end of Matthew? Uh, or... Are they the leaders of unfallen worlds? Now, I'm more inclined to go with the latter. You can read that it says there was a day when the sons of gods came to gather before the Lord in heaven. And you wonder, who are these sons of God? Well, when Luke goes through the genealogy of humanity, it talks about Enos, who is the son of Seth, who is the son of Adam, who is the son of God. So Adam is called the son of God because he is created. He isn't born. And these are the leaders, we believe, of unfallen worlds. And in the same way that God has got 24 leaders in the Old Testament and Chronicles, you read about 24 leaders both militarily and in the sanctuary. There's 12 for the day and 12 for the night or 12 for half of the year. God divided them differently. And Jesus has 12 apostles. 12, of course, is a uh, two times 12 is 24. These are like leaders of God's unfallen universe is one theory I've heard. And uh, some believe they're the uh, resurrected saints. I don't, what are your thoughts? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, you know, there is a verse actually in the Old Testament that talks about the elders. Isaiah 24 verse 23, it says, the Lord shall reign before his elders gloriously. Mm -hmm. Now that's the Old Testament. Of course, you have those who were resurrected at the time of Christ's resurrection. But then you also have in the book of Job, it talks about the sons of God or you know, these uh, representatives of these unfallen worlds. That's right. And yeah. uh, the devil came representing earth. So this was not a meeting that took place on the earth. It was somewhere else. And you have these representatives. So, 
You know, if you look at the the uh, chronology that's given in, in Revelation chapter 4, you have a description of the heavenly throne room, God the Father is seated upon the throne, it talks about the four living creatures, and it mentions there the 24 elders, but it's not until you get to chapter 5 that you see Jesus, that he appears. So it's as if Revelation 4 describes heaven before Christ comes, and if, uh, well, we know those who were resurrected at the time of Christ's resurrection, they were taken to heaven with Jesus, it would seem that uh, the 24 elders are already in heaven before Jesus and those who are resurrected mm-hmm. actually get to heaven. Yep. So that gives the idea that the 24 elders would be something more than just those who are resurrected. It's The other group would be the representatives of the unfallen worlds. So I appreciate that. Hope that helps a little, Maggie. And uh, we do have a new Revelation magazine uh, that you can read. It's uh, a Revelation, or, sorry, Amazing Facts has a magazine on Daniel and Revelation. You can find that at the AF Bookstore. That's Amazing Facts Bookstore. You'll see that there. Next caller that we have is uh, Angela, and she is listening in Illinois. She's on the road. Angela, welcome to the program. Hi. I have a question, and I think it may be Amos chapter 4, but I'm not sure. Okay. It says that we should not be wanting to hasten the day of the Lord because it will be a day of great... uh, Yeah. Yeah, why do you pray for the day of the Lord? It'll be a day of distress and a day of punishment. Right. Yeah. And when you put your hand on the wall to steady yourself, then you'll be bitten by a snake and things like that. Yes. So. <laughs> and a serpent will bite you, yeah. I'm looking it up right now. Um, yeah, that's uh, here it is. It's Amos 5.19. It says... Um, it will be, well, I can actually back up. It'll be here. It says, Woe to those who desire the day of the Lord. This is Amos 5.18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? He's talking about the wicked. Why would you want the day of the Lord? It's a day of darkness and no light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. That's bad luck. Or though he went into the house running for his life, leans on the wall, and a serpent bit him. <laughs> In other words, he's saying, you can run, but you can't hide. No matter where you go, calamity is going to follow you because it's a judgment. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment for those who have neglected the opportunity to have their sins forgiven and to know the Lord and be surrendered to the Lord. The second coming is uh, a nightmare for them. It's judgment. Probation's closed. Absolutely. You look in Revelation chapter 6, right up at the second coming of Christ, the wicked turn to the rocks and the mountains, and they say, fallen us and hide us from the mm-hmm. face of him who sits upon the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So, it's, it's not a, a day of rejoicing for the wicked. It is a day of rejoicing for the saved, for the righteous, right. but not for the wicked. They will say, this is the Lord. We have waited for him and he will save us. And the wicked will cast their idols of gold and silver to the rats and the bats and the moles. And so you've got this contrast of your butterflies and your cockroaches when the Lord comes. Some go to the light and some run from the light. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate that. We've got uh, Jeremiah listening in Texas. Jeremiah, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you for having me, Pastor. Yeah, and you we're glad to have you. Your question. And my question is, uh, it's about fasting. It seems to elicit extra attention from God when we when we add fasting to prayer. I came across this verse in First Samuel fifteen twenty two, where Samuel says, "Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord?" Mm-hmm. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. If there is some area of sin in your life, can that interfere with the plight you are fasting for? 
Well, I, I think that when you decide to fast and pray and reach out to the God, that should involve a, a, a willingness for total surrender. And if you've got some area in your life that uh, you know is in rebellion, that ought to be part of your fasting and your praying. So if you're saying, oh Lord, I've got this, um, this sickness and I want to be healed, but you know you're living in sin, well, why do you want to be healed? So you can get sick and die forever? Why don't you say, Lord, I want to be healed of sin and then I've got eternal life. And then the physical healing is a small matter. So uh, you always want to have your priorities. The, the worst thing that could happen to anyone is to be living in sin, still be a captive to the devil. Because that, that's the first thing you ought to be fasting and praying for. And even when we do an anointing for somebody, um, it talks about, and if they've committed sins, they'll be forgiven. It's understood when you're praying for healing that there's some time spent in personal repentance and getting yourself right with God if you're going to fast and pray. And you know, you've got the parable of the uh, tax collector and the Pharisee who went to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee said, well, I fast twice a week, you know, and I give my tithe and I do all of these good deeds. Yeah. And in reality, his fasting didn't mean anything because yeah. he was filled with pride. Whereas, you know, the tax collector, he, he wept, beat upon his breast and said, Lord, be merciful unto me, a sinner. Mm -hmm. And Jesus says, he's the one that went home justified. So fasting is a lot to do with attitude. It's not just abstaining from food, but it's abstaining from food for the right reason, right. seeking God, uh, wanting to gain victory. Yep. So hopefully that helps a little, Jeremy. We appreciate your call. Next one of the have is uh, Richard in New York. Richard, welcome to the program. Good evening, pastors. I would like to know, does God have a true church on this earth? And should we as Christians be concerned with denominations? Okay, great question. Uh, I will answer your question with a question in that uh, in the Old Testament, did God have a nation, a particular nation that he called and to make them the guardians of his oracles of truth? And that's a rhetorical question because the answer is yes. He clearly called Abraham and his descendants. Now, does that mean they were better than other nations? Does that mean every Jew is automatically saved? No, Jews were like other people. There were good ones and there were bad ones. And uh, some were faithful, some were not. Uh, the early church, you've got some of the Jewish people that condemned Jesus, and the early church is formed of Jewish people, like the apostles. So, does God have a movement now, when you get into the last days, is there a remnant movement that he has, that he has made a, a guardian of the oracles of truth? I believe the answer is yes. Uh, you know, obviously, if there are hundreds of different denominations that call themselves Christians. And I believe there are saved people in many different churches. In the days of Israel, God still had faithful people that weren't even Israelites. The Bible says that you know God spoke through uh, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. He was not an Israelite. He spoke through Naaman, and Naaman was saved, and uh, Elijah was sent to the Canaanite woman, and you know God had his people. Um, so, uh, but he he still had a nation, a group that he used, and, and they, he organized them in a special way. In the Old Testament, God has an organized work in the New Testament. Um, with all these different denominations, we know that some are going to be closer to the Bible than others. Some, I think we would agree, are pretty far from the Bible. That means some are going to be closer to the Bible. You want to find the one that is the closest to the Bible. You know, we have a study guide called the Bride of Christ. And in the New Testament, the church, the true church, it's described as the Bride of Christ. Mm -hmm. So what does the Bible say? How, what are we to look for? If we're looking for a church, 
We'll be happy to send the study guide to anyone who calls and asks. Just ask for the study guide. It's called The Bride of Christ. And we'll be happy to send it to anyone in North America. The number is 800-835-6747. That is our resource phone line. Just call and ask. We'll send you the study guide, The Bride of Christ. Next caller that we have is, uh, let's see, we've got Jesse listening in uh, California. Jesse, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Good evening. Yeah. My question is regarding the staff of Moses. It's first mentioned in the book of Exodus, uh, chapter 4, verse 2, but not much information after that. So where would, uh, please tell me, enlighten me more information you might have. Yeah, yeah. the shepherds, and Moses was a shepherd, and the nation of Israel were a nation of shepherds, even when Joseph went. Um, you know, Jacob said, well, you know, we're a nation of shepherds, which was largely an abomination to the Egyptians. Shepherds all had a rod. The patriarchs of every family sort of had a rod, and they might be engraved. There was some way of distinguishing them from others, because there was one time when uh, there was a challenge against Moses and Aaron, and God said, tell the elders of Israel to take their rods they all had a distinctive rod and an insignia on it, and they were carved. Put them before the Lord, and God is going to show you who among the elders he accepts, and it was Aaron's rod. It starts out here in Exodus 4 talking about Moses' rod, but you go later on, it often calls it Aaron's rod, because Aaron was the older brother, and it seemed like that that terminology shifted once Aaron got into Egypt. But um, So a rod represented the, the authority of the family. And rulership. So we also find that Jesus is said to have a rod. And Revelation talks about Christ coming with a rod of iron, meaning he's going to execute judgment upon the wicked at the second coming of Christ. So rods, or the rod, has um, symbolic significance in the Bible as well. Yeah, it says they're, they're shattered as a potter's vessel mm-hmm. when he comes with the rod. And so, uh, yeah, it's a symbol of that. So hopefully that helps a little bit, and um, we appreciate that. I'm looking at the clock. I tell you what, listening friends, we, we, we do something unusual here because this radio program is on hundreds of stations that are both land-based and some are satellite-based. Their time schedule is a little different. So we sort of sign off in stages. In just a moment, we're going to sign off and say farewell to those who are listening on national satellite. But we stay on and we take some rapid-fire Bible questions that come in via the Internet. Now, someone wants to send us an Internet question Pastor Ross, what's the address for that? All you have to do is just email the question to balquestions at amazingfacts.org. That's B-A-L, Bible Answers Live, questions at amazingfacts.org. And then we gather these questions together and we try to answer as many questions as we could in uh, about two and a half minutes. So we sign off with our satellite radio and then we'll encourage land-based stations and those watching on the internet. Stay with us as we're going to address as many of these questions as we can. Yeah, and thank you very much those who are listening on Satellite uh, Radio. Keep in tune, and God willing, we'll study with you next week. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast. We hope you understand your Bible even better than before. Bible Answers Live is produced by Amazing Facts International, a faith-based ministry located in Granite Bay, California. Hello, friends. Welcome back to Bible Answers Live. And as we mentioned before the break, this is the time where we take your Bible questions that you've emailed to us here at Amazing Facts. So, Pastor, we have a number of great questions this evening, so I'm going to get right to it. The first question is, why is God going to restore the earth into a paradise if everyone is going to heaven when Jesus comes? Yeah, well, we don't go up forever. He first takes us up, and we live and reign with Christ a thousand years in heaven. 
heaven, which is the up dwelling place of God where he is now. So first we go to him. He says, in my father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go, I will receive you unto myself. That where I am, that place in heaven, we will be. But you read in Revelation 21, at the end of that 1,000 years, the new Jerusalem descends from God out of heaven, comes down to earth. God creates a new heaven and a new earth. And the Bible says, blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. So ultimately, we build houses and we inhabit them. We have mansions in the city. We live in this world. God fulfills his original plan. All right, question number two. It says, I know that the sacrificial goat in Leviticus 16 represents Christ, but can you explain who the scapegoat represents? Yeah, on the Day of Atonement, there were two goats that were chosen. One was called the Lord's goat, and it is sacrificed. It represents the Lord. It dies for sin. Its blood is applied. The other goat, they used to transfer the guilt of the nation to this goat. It was carried off in the wilderness. It was banished forever. And they understand that represents the um, sort of the eternal uh, separation from the devil and sin of God's people. That that scapegoat is the one that it's not the sin bearer in the sense that Christ is. This is the devil paying for his own sins he's instigated. That's right. And the scapegoat was never sacrificed. No, no bloodshed and it's banished forever. Next question that we have, how long did Adam and Eve live in the Garden of Eden before they sinned? You just do a little speculation. And if the last command of God, after everything is perfect, he says, be fruitful and multiply. They are perfectly healthy. And but uh, sin happens before they procreate. So we're assuming that it wasn't very long, probably a matter of weeks or months, that the devil, uh, he sent a blitzkrieg and attacked him, caught him off guard shortly after creation. All right, last question. Uh, what is the difference between the Old and the New Covenant? Well, that's a big question for a short one. Well, when you take your Bible and you split it into, you get the New Testament or New Covenant is talking about when Jesus actually did come. The Old Covenant is the law written on stone, the new covenant is the law written on our hearts. Hey, thank you so much, friends. God bless. Keep us in your prayers, and we appreciate your supporting the program. We are faith-based. Study together again next week. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific time. To take advantage of the offers you've heard on this broadcast, Call us at 800-835-6747 or visit our website at amazingfacts.org. Tune in next time for more Bible Answers Live. Honest and accurate answers to your Bible questions.